When my brother Sidney was four years old, he was possessed by a demon. I wasn't even born yet, but I've heard the stories. The way my mom always told it. It all started when a friend of her gave Sidney a stuffed rabbit named Mr. Jinkies. It had belonged to a woman since she herself was a child and was given to Sidney to help with nightmares he was having, as the same toy had helped the woman's night terrors when she was young as well. At first, Sidney had approved. But then my parents noticed that he was acting different. Anger and violence were part of it, but that wasn't the worst. No. The thing that always upset Mom when she talked about it was that he would get this terrible, sly look on his face when he thought no one was looking. It was an adult look, an evil look that didn't belong on the face of any child, much less Sidney, who had always been sweet and kind. It only got worse over the next several years. I was born when Sidney was six, and I remember things when they were at their worst. Strange things would happen around the house. We were all plagued by strange and terrible dreams, and any time we had a pet, they would die mysteriously. The unspoken question was never whether Sidney had a hand in it, but rather whether he had physically killed the poor thing, or had it been done by the unseen creature that haunted his heart. For a long time, we didn't have a name for that creature, and it wasn't until later we started to refer to it as Mr. Jinkies. This was partly because giving it a name would have meant acknowledging it was real. Beyond that, Mr. Jinkies was the name of the stuffed rabbit, and for the first few years, no one even made the connection between the toy and the entity that had taken hold of Sydney. The work friend that had given us the rabbit had left Mom's office and moved away soon after we got Mr. Jinkies, but at the time, no one realized that Sydney's odd behavior and fixation on the toy was anything other than him acting up and loving Mr. Jinkies. And then one day, the rabbit just disappeared. I was an infant at the time, but my father told me once that the strangest thing about it going missing was that Sidney didn't seem to care. He'd been inseparable from that thing since he'd first gotten it, but when it was gone, my brother didn't miss a beat. It wasn't until later that we understood that was because the real Mr. Jinkies had never left. I never knew my brother when he wasn't possessed, so at first it didn't seem strange when he would say cruel things to me or hurt me when no one was around. As I got older and saw how other children were, how other siblings got treated, I realized my mistake. I told my parents and they were properly upset, but I couldn't say they were entirely surprised. They'd already figured out something was deeply wrong with Sydney by that point, and they weren't ready to say words like spirit or demon, yet they should have known enough to watch him more closely around his little brother. Still, if I hated him then a little for their past willful blindness, I was relieved when his treatment of me became the breaking point. Before my outcry, Sidney had occasionally gone to child psychologists and medical doctors, but our parents had largely tried to handle his condition on their own. Looking back now that I'm older, I realize that this mainly consisted of them lying to each other, trading reassurances that it was all just a phase that Sidney was going through. But when they found out that he'd been hurting me, they sent him for in-house psychological evaluation and treatment. This was when I was about five, and the more obvious, strange things hadn't really started. 
but even if they had, my parents wouldn't have told the doctors about it. It was a double-edged shame, you see. A shame to have a child that was under the influence of some unseen, inhuman thing. And a shame to believe that something so foolish as that could even be true. So they wasted years on drugs and therapy, punishments and pleading, and over the years our house became a prison. My door was locked and there was a door wedge tight against the bottom. My parents' door was the same. Sydney's was similar, except his locked and wedged from the outside. I used to lay in bed at night when I was a little boy, afraid to go to sleep because I didn't want to be taken by Sidney or the thing that lived behind his eyes. I knew he should be secure in his room. The door was heavy and solid, and there was chicken wire over the nailed-down windows, but it didn't matter. I didn't think he necessarily needed to leave his room to hurt us. I could feel him, feel it, on the other side of the house, thinking about us, sending out tendrils of poison to weaken us. All while smiling that terrible, knowing smile. And week after month after year, it was working. We grew weak from the constant exhaustion of always being watchful, of being worried, afraid. That's how it wins, you see, by being patient. It chips at you and chips at you, digging away at all the walls of your sanity and soul with a tiny little spoon, like in those prison escape movies where they tunnel out of their cell. And Mr. Jinkies was trying to get in. Not out, but the reasoning was the same. Just dig away a little at a time, and no one will notice until it's too late. I grew into a frightened, distrustful boy that was prone to anxiety and emotional outbursts. My father became increasingly short-tempered and would fly into terrible rages for no apparent reason. My mom took to over-medicating and crying almost daily. And all in that time, Sydney would just sit back and watch, drinking it all in. By the time I turned seven and Sydney was 13, it had become clear that our house was not really ours anymore. We were seeing and hearing things, finding objects moved around, and living with the constant feeling that something was present that hated us and meant us harm. All of those things were frightening, and not just because of the events themselves, but because of the message they were meant to send. Mr. Jinkies was in control now, and the time for hiding was over. You may be questioning why it took so long for my family to realize the depth of the problem we were facing. You have to understand that these kinds of things, they don't happen quickly. It's not like you see in a horror movie where there's a big dramatic reveal full of blood on the walls and people levitating. Instead, it's like a slow-moving virus infecting the person, and by extension their family, and not making itself known until it's too late. Except that's not quite right. Because Mr. Jinkies wasn't a virus. It was a parasite, draining all the love and goodness from Cindy and replacing it with something dark and filthy, corrupting him and poisoning us all. One day, my parents found where Sydney was preparing for some kind of uh, ritual, I guess. 
They would never say exactly what they found, only that it was in the back of the old backyard work shed, and it was terrible. And we never knew what the ritual was for. They couldn't even say for sure that it hadn't already been completed. Cindy was questioned about it, of course, but he just smirked and acted ignorant. When he was younger, he would cry and act confused about why he was being treated, always the prime suspect when something went wrong, always locked away in his room at night. As he'd gotten older, Cindy had become openly hostile, full of contempt as he mocked our fear. Still, his expression changed that evening when there was a knock on the door. The thin-faced man introduced himself as Christopher Darrow, a former priest, he said. He now helped families in need of parapsychological counseling and assistance in some of the forms of what he called spiritual warfare. He had a severe look about him, but he spoke with a kind of refined intelligence and authority that wasn't unkind. It was also clear from the beginning that my parents were desperate enough to take help from anyone offered particularly from someone that would actually believe what was going on. There was still the sticking point of how Darrow knew to come there, however. That, he explained, was because he had contacts at several occult shops across the state. Sidney had apparently gone to a local one a few days ago and when he was supposed to be in school. The shop owner had alerted Darrow about the visit immediately, both because of the dangerousness of the items Sidney had been inquiring about and the shop owner's intuition that the boy before him was infested by something unnatural. Darrow was standing in our front hall by this point, and I was already seeing our parents' shoulders slump with relief. They were satisfied with the explanation and were more than willing to have him come examine Sidney. My brother was locked up in his room at this point, and... Mom stayed with me as our father took the man upstairs. It wasn't long before I heard Sidney start to screech and yell, and in less than an hour, it was done. My father was pale and clearly shaken by the experience, but he also seemed convinced that Darrow had expelled whatever was living in my brother for good. Darrow cautioned that it would be a slow process of recovery and that we would need to be patient with Sidney, but and we should see no further problems of the spiritual variety out of the boy. And just like that, the man was gone again. It all happened so fast, and it wasn't until a few hours had passed that our parents started questioning the strangeness of the entire encounter. And honestly, they never questioned it too much, mainly because the man seemed to have worked a miracle. Sidney was still odd acting for the next few days, but more because he just seemed subdued and traumatized. By the end of the month, he was like a different person. He was being nice to me, getting along with our parents, and not getting into trouble at school. By the time he was 14, the locks had come off of our bedroom doors and our house felt like a home again. In the 10 years since, Sidney's completed high school and college with good grades. He's already been accepted into philosophy graduate program that starts next spring. He was going to start this past fall, but then Mom suddenly got sick. We were thinking she was going to get over it. She started feeling and looking better after all, but then one day I came home from school to find out that she died 30 minutes before. When Sydney was alone with her. 
I remember the summer I spent with my uncle when I was 10. Things were good at home by then, but I still enjoyed being out in the world and away from all the memories that our house held for a few days or weeks when I got the chance. My uncle's place was entirely different than anything I'd ever known. A remote farm surrounded by woods. It was peaceful, beautiful, and free of fear or worry. I used to spend hours walking the nearby woods, and one day I came back to the house. My uncle stopped me as I was walking in. I had a tick on my neck. I think my uncle expected I was going to be upset about it, but I had been through much worse than getting bit by a bug. Still, he cautioned me not to move as he got ready to remove it with a pair of needle-nose pliers. The trick, he said, was to make sure you got the whole thing when you pulled it. If you didn't get close enough to the skin, you could pull off the body of the tick and leave the head. That, he said, could lead to an infection down the line. Almost as if he was disappointed I wasn't more squeamish about it, he went on, his mouth twitching with a barely suppressed mischievous grin. He told me he'd even heard stories of the tick surviving without its body. Sometimes, he said, the tick head would just keep on living and drinking from its victim. Even at ten, I knew he was joking, but I always remembered the story. I think even then... I knew he was unintentionally teaching me something important. Everyone thinks Sidney is fine. Our father will hear no bad words spoken about him. And when I asked why Sidney was with mom when she died, our father told me he had allowed it. That Sidney said he had something important to tell her that he'd been right outside the door the entire time my brother was in there with her. That there wasn't anything mysterious or sinister about her death. She just been sicker than anyone realized. When I subtly ask Sidney's friends about how he's been acting lately, they act like I'm the weird one. They say that he's been the same as always. Awesome. I tried talking to his girlfriend about it, and at first she just looked confused. When I kept pressing, feeling sure she must have seen some sign of his wrongness, she started shaking her head instead of to walk away. She said I was making her uncomfortable. I wanted to shout at her, to tell her that she should be fucking uncomfortable because she was with a monster. <sighs> but I held my tongue, and I told her I was sorry, that this was all just a bad joke on my part. But of course, it's not a joke. Mr. Jinkies is still in my brother, just like always. Whatever that Darrow man did, at most he weakened it. He may have gotten rid of the body of the tick but he somehow left the head, and that's all that thing needs to live and control my brother, to make him kill our mother and corrupt our lives. So this morning, I killed Sidney. It wasn't difficult. He'd always pretended to love me and trust me since he was cured, and when I said I wanted to go out to our uncle's farm, he acted happy to come with me. It was our farm now anyway. Our uncle had died at the end of that same summer where he told me about the tick head. And while we didn't get out there often, I still tried to go for walks in those woods every month or two. I waited until we were near the edge of a tall cliff far back in the woods, one with a small but fast river rushing past some 40 feet below. I struck him from behind with a rock, hoping the force of it would send him forward and off the edge. 
Instead, he wheeled backwards before falling down into the grass. I hit him in the back of the head, but clearly his brain was damaged some from the blow. He looked around confusedly, his right eye nearly black from its enlarged iris while his left eye fought to focus in on me. I thought he might curse me or try to attack, but instead he just sat there holding his head and crying. You have... you have to fight it, Brian. I know it's in you. I've suspected it for a long time, just... Don't let it trick you. I was approaching him as he spoke, the sharp rock raised above my head. Seeming to understand that his words were having no effect, he stopped and lowered his eyes. Please, don't hurt anyone else. After I was done, I threw him off the cliff and into the water below. As I suspected, the current quickly carried him downriver into a series of sharp rocks that would help conceal his initial injuries. My story would be that we'd taken separate paths while walking, and when I couldn't find him after some time, I started searching for him. I'd been careful not to get any blood on me, and the rock was disposed of far away, so there's nothing to tie me to his death when they eventually find his body. Besides, I doubted anyone was going to look into it that far anyway. He was a troubled boy, after all. Sure, he'd had a few good years, but who knew what demons he still harbored. Maybe he committed suicide, or maybe it was a tragic accident, but one thing was certain. His good, younger brother would never have hurt him. Everyone knows what a good and caring guy I am. Always honest and thoughtful, never in trouble, graduating valedictorian in the fall. I have a sterling reputation. I've made sure of it. The only sad thing is that no one will appreciate the sacrifice I had to make in killing my own brother. They'll never know the evil that I've purged from this world by doing what they were too weak or selfish to do. They'll never realize I'm a hero. But I guess that's okay. I didn't do it for the glory, and who knows, it may not be the last time I get to do something brave. Besides... I'm not stupid. I understand most people would think I murdered my brother rather than saving him and the world from a terrible monster. Those people can't accept a world that bleeds outside the mundane boundaries of their narrow view of things. They don't have the courage to see me as I am yet. But that's alright. I'm very patient. Are we there yet? Asked Mike in an obnoxious, nasally tone. You're the navigator, Andy replied flatly. You tell me. Cynthia grunted. I swear to God, Mike, if you say we're lost and wind up in a creepy cabin in the woods and getting picked off one by one... Mike fiddled with his phone. Relax, I'm just kidding. We're almost there. 
I wrapped my arm around Cynthia's shoulders and pulled her close to me. Well, I can't imagine a more romantic way to die than slowly being dismembered by my favorite person on earth. Aw, babe, she cooed. Mike craned his neck back to look at us. Uh, he meant me? Cynthia kicked his seat as hard as she could. I could hear the annoyance in Andy's voice as he replied, Settle down, kids. The three of us answered in unison. Okay, Dad. He sighed and rolled his eyes. I should just left you all on the side of the road. Take the next left, said Mike. Not me, though, right? You'd never get rid of me. Andy grunted. Especially you. Mike let out a whimper. Well, I'm hurt. I thought we had something special. All those late night cram sessions. The car turned left onto a narrow gravel path. You mean the nights I spent studying and you spent getting drunk in my dorm hiding from your creepy roommate? Andy replied. Hey, I'm not creepy, I shouted. Mike cackled. <laughs> Burn. He stretched in satisfaction and settled back into his seat. Just keep going straight. The parking lot should be at the end of this road. Mike closed his map app and switched to social media. My phone dinged. I'd been tagged in a post. Overnight camping trip with these losers. All caps. Losers being spelled with a Z. Classic Mike. Cynthia's phone dinged seconds later. She looked at the screen and then to me. She winked. I got this. She kicked Mike's seat again. He toppled forward a little bit and then settled back in the seat and chuckled. Andy pulled up to a slightly wider gravel area. This looks about right. There were a few cars there already, half on the gravel and half on grass. One of them was so caked in fallen leaves I couldn't see inside. Must have gotten caught in the storm a few days before. I remembered having to peel leaves off my own car this morning. Of course, it hadn't helped I parked right under a maple tree. My mistake. We got out of the car and grabbed our camping gear. Got everything? Asked Andy. Mike lifted a case of beer. Everything that matters. I checked the back seat to make sure we hadn't forgotten anything. Okay, so where's the campsite? Asked Cynthia. Andy looked around. There should be a trail somewhere around here. I closed the car door and joined the three by the hood. I looked for the trail, but since the ground was covered in leaves, nothing stood out. It's hard to find the one dirt path when there's a blanket of red and yellow all over the place. Mike pointed toward an opening in the trees. There. Cynthia quirked a brow. Are you sure that's the trail? Shouldn't there be a sign? Mike shrugged. Might have blown away in the storm this week. The wind was so strong my umbrella flipped three times walking from the library to the social sciences building. Andy turned toward him. Wait, what were you doing in the social sciences building? Mike turned redder than a tomato dipped in tomato sauce. Uh, I, um, I like the fun shui of their study hall. Cynthia snickered. Oh, Mikey over here, I have a crush on the barista working there. You don't say, murmured Andy. I could see the cogs in Andy's head start to turn. Mike waved his arms dismissively. It's more of a mutual understanding and respect of the art of coffee. He took a few steps toward the tree line. It's really not important. What's important is setting up the camp before dark. Come on, I'm sure this is the way. 
Cynthia grunted. We are so getting murdered, aren't we? We followed Mike because, honestly, even if no one was sure he knew the way, no one else wanted to take the lead and be wrong. Mike was an easy scapegoat. We figured we'd double back to the car if he led us down the wrong path and make him wear the proverbial cone of shame for the rest of the trip. It'd be a great team-building exercise. Unfortunately, it looked like he was right, because after trudging along for half an hour, we came across a clearing. Well, 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 look who didn't lead you right into the arms of an axe murderer, Mike said proudly. This is your greatest achievement yet, Mikey, I replied. The clearing was surrounded by tall pine trees, which, based on the amount of pine needles on the ground, hadn't fared much better in the storm than their non-conferious brethren. There were two tents around the site. I assumed the muddiest and the uh, pine needliest one belonged to the driver of a truck covered in leaves. There was a large fire pit in the middle of the site with a still roaring fire and a few logs stacked in a circle around it. If the other campers were around, they didn't bother to say hello. Man, these are some messy sons of bitches, Mike said loudly. He motioned to a few piles of ash, some discarded pieces of clothing scattered around the site. Cynthia set her gear down and started sweeping pine needles with her foot. Could be worse. Could be pee jugs. Mike shuddered at the thought. Andy started unloading the tent. We might fill some tonight. Mike's face drained of color. Are you serious? Do you know how disgusting that is? He gagged. Nope, not going there. Change the subject. Cynthia, how's school? Cynthia shrugged. It's fine. It didn't sound fine, but neither Mike nor myself are going to push her for answers. We were here to relax, not worry about college. I grabbed the assembly instructions while Cynthia finished clearing a spot to pitch the tent. Andy ripped the instructions out of my hand and tossed them into the tent's carrying case. Hey, I shouted. We don't need that, he replied flatly. You might not need that, but I... He pulled a band off the flat tent and it suddenly exploded into its proper shape. In my defense, no one told me you brought up a pop-up tent, I mumbled. Pass me the stakes, answered Andy. He nailed the tent in place while I helped occasionally by handing him another stake. At least I was being more helpful than Mike, who meandered around the campsite kicking strangers' dirty clothes into a single pile. I guess he needed the peace of mind knowing that they were all in one place and he wouldn't be walking on them. Cynthia, in the meantime, tossed our sleeping bags and other belongings into the tent and then set up our electric grill. We cooked ourselves hot dogs and sat around the campfire making idle conversation for the most of the evening. There might have been a bit of drinking involved. Where is everyone anyways? Cynthia asked. Okay, maybe a lot of drinking. I huddled up closer to her to steal her body heat. What do you mean? We're all here, babe. She pointed to the extra tents. The sun's been down for hours. Andy, sitting on the other side of the flame, narrowed his eyes. The angle of the light made him look sinister. There's an old legend around these parts about a dark, shadowy creature that crawls into tents in the middle of the night and eats campers alive. Cynthia rolled her eyes. You're so full of shit, 
Andy, I'm serious. What if they went hiking and one of them, I don't know, slipped on a mossy rock and fell over the side of the mountain and his friend tried to save him, but he also slipped down and another boat dead at the bottom of the canyon, quietly trying to scream for help, but their throats got crushed and they can't make a sound. Or, I don't know, they're lost? Should, shouldn't we try to find a ranger? I don't think this park has rangers, does it? I asked. Mike shrugged. No idea, man. Cynthia started shivering, so I held her tighter. Okay, well, whatever. We'll let those poor souls suffer and die at the bottom of a cliff, said Cynthia. Andy stared at the crackling fire in front of him. I'm sure they're fine. They just left before we showed up, so I guess they're used to hiking in the dark. Mike snorted. (laughs) How do you figure that, Sherlock? He mentioned the fire. The fire was burning when we got here. That means someone was around to tend to it. Cynthia shivered. I'm going to get my sleeping back. She pried herself free and then stumbled to the tent. The sudden absence of her body heat made me shiver. It really is cold, I mumbled. Andy shrugged. Get closer to the fire then. I got up, rolled my log a few feet closer and sat back down didn't help. You're still shivering, Mike said. Yeah, well, it's really cold, I replied. He grinned and tossed me a beer. This should warm you up. I popped the cap off and chugged it like a nerd trying to prove he's cool enough to join a frat. I felt a flush of warmth radiating from within me, but it didn't keep the cold from seeping in. There's something odd about the fire, Andy said. Mike looked up. Huh? Has anyone fed it since we got here? Andy asked. I shook my head. So did Mike. Didn't think so, he replied. Either one of you up for a game of fire chicken? Fire what? Asked Mike. It's when you play chicken with a fire. Two people slowly move their hand towards the flame. The first one to pull away loses. I explained. I looked at Andy. I'm game. I didn't understand what Andy had in mind, but I was always up for drunken shenanigans. We stood on opposite ends of the fire, and the look on Andy's eyes was intense. I'd only ever seen that amount of focused determination during midterms. He stared at that fire like he'd just caught it in bed with his girlfriend, mom, and grandma. We stretched our arms out. Ready? asked Andy. Ready, I replied. Mike bounced in his seat. Set, go. We mirrored each other in speed, but not in intensity. Andy was trying to prove something while I was just trying to have dumb fun. He took a step, I took a step. My arm felt cold. Or was it hot? It was hard to tell. There was something heavy in the air, overwhelming me with dread. This is stupid. I whispered. Andy didn't pull away, so neither did I. Christ almighty, what are you doing? shouted Cynthia. I started to turn to look at her, but Andy, with his damn cat-like reflexes, reached through the flames and yanked my hand in. What the fuck are you doing? I screamed. He held me there for a good thirty seconds before I realized something. Flames 
didn't burn. I looked at Andy incredulously. He let me go and focused his attention on the fire. He let me go and focused his attention on the fire. He knelt down and hovered his hand at the bottom where the flames were supposed to be the hottest. Cynthia hopped over us like a kid in a potato sack race with her sleeping bag zipped all the way up to her neck. She was speechless. Dude, doesn't that hurt? Mike asked. Andy wiggled his fingers. No. The fire's not hot, I told Mike. Mike stared at us. What do you mean the fire's not hot? It's fire. I backed away and stumbled, landing on my log. It was like I'd waved my hand through thin air. Scary thin air, like the kind you find in a dark room as you paw around trying to hit the light switch, but thin air nonetheless. Cynthia dropped next to me, her eyes on my arm rather than Andy's. I could tell she was trying to size it up to see whether I'd burned myself. When she saw I was fine, she unzipped her arm free and whacked me upside the head. What the hell were you thinking? She screamed. Nothing. I... I I whispered. How stupid can you be? Do you know how painful third-degree burns are? Do you have any idea how hard they are to treat? I should have known her internship in the burn unit was bothering her. She hadn't been the same since she started. Look, I'm okay, I whispered, wiggling my fingers. She looked away coldly. I worry about you sometimes. Dude, this is so fucking cool, screamed Mike. He joined Andy by the fire. Andy pulled his arm out and gave Mike room to play as he inspected his skin. It looked fine. Mike swung his arms horizontally, cutting through the flames. It looked like he was having the time of his life. How is this even possible? Cynthia asked. Mike jumped into the fire pit. Maybe it's a hologram? I don't see a projector, answered Andy, scanning the area. Mike shrugged and began to dance a weird fake tribal dance in the middle of the fire pit. Fear me, mortals, he bellowed as he waved his arms and stomped his feet to an unheard beat. I am Ra, god of fire. Sun, corrected Andy. Ra is the god of the sun. Mike ignored him. He spun around and lifted his arms to the sky. I am Ra, god of fire. Through it all, the flames never seemed phased. They never faltered, never weakened, and never swayed as a direct result of Mike's movements. Maybe he was right about it being a hologram. We need to document this, said Andy, pulling out his phone to record what was happening. You would think the novelty of the fire wouldn't wear off too quickly, but it did. You can only stare into a funhouse mirror for so long before it stops being funny. With the night getting colder and the fire not providing us anything in terms of warmth, we retreated to the tent about an hour later. The tent which might have struggled to fit four adults comfortably, but definitely didn't fit four drunk adults comfortably. I found myself pinned between Cynthia and Mike, with each snoring in my ear and Mike drooling in my hair. He kept twitching and smacking me in his sleep. Suffice to say, I didn't get much rest that night. Come morning, Mike was holding me in a lover's embrace. 
I might have pushed him away, but I'll take body heat where I can get it, I guess. Andy was the first to officially wake up, and when he left the tent before, I'd even had a chance to whisper hello. Cynthia was next, and as soon as she saw the giant slug holding me captive, she whipped him with a shirt like a football coach with a towel in the locker room. My grunted and unhooked from me. I was having such a nice dream. How'd you sleep, babe? asked Cynthia. Pretty well, answered Mike. And I just threw up in my mouth. Thanks, Mike. I laughed. It was great seeing my friend and girlfriend getting along. Where's Andy? Mike asked. Outside, I answered. I'm joining him. Just come out when you're ready. I yawned and got up. Well, crouched up. There wasn't enough room to properly stand in our tent. I left the tent and heard all my bones cracking in protest as I stretched myself straight. Andy was sitting by the fire, taking a million photos. It's still going? I asked. Yep, answered Andy. I think we're going to come back with some equipment, try to figure out what's going on here. Okay, well, in the meantime, you want to help me pack up? I'm dying for a shower. Yeah. We kicked the two sleepier ones out of the tent and started rolling up the sleeping bags and disassembling the tent. Sans instructions, might I add. Within about an hour, we were ready to leave. Andy snapped a few extra photos and went back down the trail. We never did see any other campers. We dropped Cynthia off first and then headed to the dorms. All I could think about was my bed, with its warm down comforter, fluffy pillows, and that glorious room to sprawl out on. Once home, Mike made a beeline for the fridge, and I went right for my bed, throwing my coat in the laundry hamper before passing out on my pillow. I vaguely recall hearing my phone ring at some point, but I was off in dreamland. A sharp, stinging sensation woke me up a few hours later. I opened my eyes, but the smell hit me before my brain could process the images. Something was burning. I felt a spike of adrenaline as I saw smoke rising from the laundry hamper. I jumped to my feet and ran to it, finding flames chewing up my coat's right sleeve. I pulled it out and quickly tossed it into my bathtub before it could spread to anything else, or... So I thought. Now that my attention wasn't split anymore, I noticed the fibers of my shirt's right sleeve slowly sizzling with microscopic ambers. My entire arm was in agony. I couldn't tell if it was searing hot or frozen cold. I just kept getting hit with wave upon wave of terrible, radiating pain. The only thing more sickening than the feeling was the smell. A disgusting scent like rancid beef on a frying pan. My sleeve had become a wick, and the wick was burning, no melting. I ripped the shirt off without thinking, and I could feel my skin pulling as I did it. Pieces of skin stayed on the shirt. Pieces of shirt stayed on the skin. I could see the melted woven fabric and bred into the reddened surface of my skin. My arm became a patchy mess of red and sickly yellow, like a blanket of autumn leaves on a forest floor. I didn't know what to do. I needed someone to tell me what to do. My phone went off. Somehow, through the agonizing pangs of pain blurring my mind, I managed to grab the phone. Andy was calling, and I had a new voicemail. I picked up. 
Get Mike to a doctor now, he shouted with no regard for my well-being. But I think he figured out that something was happening, whereas I could only think about how much pain I was in and how nothing I did could make this stop. The burn didn't get worse, and the pain wasn't letting up for a second. It was excruciating. The doctor, Mike, now, Andy insisted. I could hear him say it through gritted teeth. He was choking back the tears that were already falling from my eyes. The authority in his voice was enough to snap me into action. I ran out of my room, whining at every air current that licked my raw, bubbling skin. Mike, I whimpered. Why was it so hard to speak? My arm was burnt, but my throat worked just fine. I think the problem was having to speak through the need to scream. Mike was sitting in front of the TV. He looked at me, then winced at the side of my arm. Holy shit, dude, what the fuck happened? Doc... Doctor, I stuttered. Yeah, man, I'll call an ambulance. Holy fuck. I was shaking. I wanted it all to stop. I wanted someone to knock me out so I wouldn't be able to feel the pain anymore. Mike called 911 while I stuck my arm in the freezer, feeling very little relief. I couldn't even tell you how long it took for the paramedics to get there. I was in shock. When they arrived and ripped me away from the freezer, I remember Andy's voice again in my head. Get Mike to a doctor now. I was dazed, disoriented. I couldn't think. I could barely breathe. But at the pit of my stomach, I knew I had to get the message across. I pointed to Mike and screamed, Him! They all seemed very confused, even Mike. One of them said he could ride along. That was enough. I tried to give in to my need to pass out, but the spikes of pain refused to let me. I simultaneously remember every single minute of agony spent in the back of that ambulance, and yet I couldn't tell you if it took two minutes, ten, or thirty. I just remember at some point, Mike's screams drowned out my own. My admittance to the ER was a blur. People kept asking me questions, something about chemicals. I couldn't answer. I remember seeing Mike thrashing in the background. I remember seeing Andy sitting in a hospital bed. I remember a needle. The pain in my arms started to decompress and the panic slowly subsided. And then it hit me. Whatever happened to me probably happened to Andy and would probably happen to Mike. And then my stomach dropped. Andy and I had put our arms in the fire. Mike had jumped in. Mike had danced in the flames that wouldn't burn. He'd spent so much time in there dancing and laughing and making a royal ass of himself. Make it stop, he screamed. It hurts. I could hear him yell all the way down the hall. I jumped to my feet and ran out of the room. All I cared about was Mike and trying to help in whichever way that I could. I met a wall of orderlies who held me back. Doctors and nurses were running into Mike's room. Let me through! I need to see my friend! I screamed. I had enough adrenaline pumping through my veins that I actually thought I could overpower them, but I guess it was just in my head. They were accustomed to dealing with grieving family members. It wasn't any effort on their part to hold me back. A bright, flickering light poured out of the doorway to Mike's room. I heard gasps and prayers and panic all around, but nothing was louder than Mike's last scream. It poured out of him in one long, horrifying stream. 
It started rough and primal, but tapered off into the cry of a child looking for his mother. The light went out, and smoke took its place. All that was left of Mike was a pile of ash and the stink of burn that spread to every corner of the hospital. It felt like it happened in an instant, but I heard it took over half an hour, and there was nothing more I could do to stop it. I heard the nurses talking about it. They said his skin melted away, his blood boiled, his fat melted, and he finally caught fire. It all happened very slowly, and he was alive and awake to suffer through it all. I hope to God that's not true, because I finally got around to checking my voicemail on my phone. Hey, babe, just letting you know I'm taking the girls to see that fire. I'll be back tomorrow. Love you. But now, it's already too late. I know because I saw the photo she posted online of her and her friends dancing in the flames.